My name is Julene Jackson. I am with Moms for America. I uh, live outside of Washington, D.C., but I am uh, doing a cross-country cross trip right now, um, escorting one of our children's doggy across the country. Let's see the slides here. We are in seminar. Uh, we're in a new seminar today, seminar number one. Hopefully you all have the books, The Attack on the Founder's Educational Dream. I think you're going to find this seminar fascinating today because we're living some of the impact of the attacks on our educational system over the last century. So um, I am coming, let's see the next slide. I am in Toledo, Ohio right now. This last week, we flew out to Utah to be with uh, one of our daughter, our little beautiful 23-year-old Mary Alice. There's my uh, Frankie, who just turned 25 last week. It is Mary Alice's high school, or not high school, or college graduation. Let's see the next slide. So Frankie bought this dog a, a year or two ago. We knew, I'm like, Frank, you you do, you do are not going to be able to take care of a dog because he's on the plane about every four or five days with the, his life in the basketball world. So then Mary Alice took over care of the doggy and took doggy with her to Utah uh, to be there the last six months. And now she uh, is finding she can't quite keep up with the doggy. So what does mom and dad do? We drive the doggy over 3,000 miles back home. And so doggy and daddy are out on the patio right now. I'm in the hotel room. But this is what we mothers do, right? We just kind of juggle everything that we do. We take our books with us and we keep learning and studying because we have got a work to do. God needs us. We have a work of armoring, of protecting our children, our rising generation. Let's see that next slide there. So we are on, I think I wanted to share with you, it was interesting. Here's uh, the commencement ceremony at the University of Utah. My daughter goes to the University of Utah. Hmm. Very good. And um, Tim Shriver, who is the nephew of JFK, was the commencement speaker. And it was really fascinating. I really appreciated his remarks about how we treat one another with dignity or with contempt. And I'm going to share a little bit more about his remarks because they were fascinating and go beautifully along with the lesson tomorrow evening that we teach 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, that cottage meeting series. So please uh, join us tomorrow night. Let's see the next slide. So we are on seminar number four, the, excuse me, seminar number three, the attacks of the Charter of Freedom, the attacks on our country, the attacks on the education system, on religion, on the constitution and our role uh, uh, out in, in the world. And so um, that will be the next four weeks of classes. Now, you know, um, we've gone through seminar number one, which are all those beautiful faith stories of the establishment of America, Joan of Arc, Christopher Columbus, the Pilgrims, George Washington, Samuel Adams, great stories. If you're, uh, if you're wanting to know some stories to teach to your children and grandchildren, just open seminar number one and read, read um, from those pages. And then we just finished the Founders Charter of Freedom. That was the Constitution, the seven articles, the 27 amendments, the first 10 amendments are the Bill of Rights that our founders gave us. They also gave us 11 and 12. And then 13, 14 and 15 came shortly after the um, Civil War. And then the uh, 16th through the 27th amendments all came in the 1900 and there were some very egregious amendments that have really disrupted the balance of power. And so we kind of learned uh, that the last four weeks as we studied the constitution. Now 
we're into the attacks. Now, this can be kind of a sobering next four weeks, but I think it's really fascinating too. This is a really interesting seminar uh, to me and to a lot of people that take these, uh, this seminar particularly. We have to remember God promises that he will heal our land in 2 Chronicles 7.14. We can take that promise to the bank that if we turn to him and get God back in our hearts and into the school systems and into the communities and into Congress, it will justify the heavens to heal our land. This nation shall endure, uh, prophecy says. So we don't need to worry about who's going to win here. God is going to win. He. We just need to make sure we are on his side. We are on that wall saying, Lord, hear him, send little old me. I don't know what I can do, but I'm willing to do something. We need to stay in relationship with him. We need to keep praying. I like Tara, you are ready to pray on the spot. Just that very second, we need to be able to offer a prayer and call out to God on the spot. And we need to be in the word. We need to be studying those Bible uh, stories in it and teaching them to our children and grandchildren so we can strengthen that family uh, unit. And then we need to continue to learn and study these principles of, of the gospel of freedom. And this is what we do when we come to our online classes or when you join uh, study groups or start study groups in your community. And as you do those things, you will be prepared to do when the opportunity presents itself to speak up, to teach, to share. I just talked to a little mama. I was driving across the country uh, yesterday and uh, uh, Gerald from New Jersey, who's gone through the curriculum, told me that her cottage meeting is going to be a part of, um, uh, of organizing a rally at the State House in Trenton, New Jersey next Monday. I'm going to go up and, and speak, but her little group, I'm so proud of them. As they learn these principles, God has put into their heart things that they can do, go out and do. And mostly what we will do will be within the four walls of our home, within our extended family. And then we'll move uh, on from there. But when we begin to fill these fiery darts penetrating into our home and onto our families and we feel that you know protection the umbrella protection of the constitution being removed we're compelled to wake up and to do something now i always say don't worry if your husbands your teenagers or your gen z's or your millennials or adult children aren't exactly on board with everything that you're learning. Look, they came up under a broken educational system, and we're going to learn about that today. So be patient with them. Don't fight them. Just teach them. Share with them what you were learning. I remember about three and a half years ago uh, when COVID was kind of breaking and the elections were coming um, uh, to, to be with Trump and, and Biden, all the kids came home uh, to the beach one summer, and my basketball boy had been sequestered in a basketball bubble. All the NBA guys were playing in um, Florida to kind of stave off the COVID spread. And so they were just pumping. It was kind of the George uh, Floyd uh, time. And he came back, his head so full of Black Lives Matters, uh, you know, I'm the victim or Black people are the victim. And then my daughters had just finished a study abroad women's studies group. So their heads were full of, you know, well, I guess it is a woman's choice to decide if she wants to keep a baby or not. Or, and, and me and my husband were just well, wanted to just throttle these kids. But, you know, when our kids come back and they're experimenting with philosophies and ideas that they're learning out in the world or in the university settings or on social media or, or you know, their workplace or their peers, 
I think that's when we as mothers and grandmothers have to dig deep, turn to God, that he'll soften our hearts so we don't want to contend and fight with them. And, and with those kids that summer, we had lots of um, uh, uh, heated conversations, so to speak, uh, and and not so much yelling and screaming, but it was active conversations that they, because they wanted, to, they were trying to process, you know, it was so convincing what they were hearing. So we continued to, you know, do our devotionals when they were with us. And I would continue to do my little daily texting with a little scripture and my personal witness of, of what was God putting on my heart. And I kept those kids close. And sure enough, uh, they, they rounded the bend and they began to see more clearly things as they really were because, you know, um, mom and dad stayed steady and we stayed the course. And so, you know, this is why we come and we learn these things. So when our children and our grandchildren present these philosophies of the world, we're able to uh, rebuke them and uh, refute them. And so God is going to reward our efforts for us, you know, doing our little studies each week filling in our little blanks and coming, uh, you know, ready with a heart and a mind to prepare to, to learn so we can turn and teach them to our children and to our grandchildren. And, and as we do these, as we try and make these efforts, God will reward us. He will help heal our children and grandchildren, adult children's hearts, and they will see and feel the spirit by which you are learning and the things that you are doing. And it will soften their hearts and they will wake up to the truth of what is really going on. It's so interesting, that little daughter that just graduated from the university, uh, we had such an interesting conversation as we were coming back from her graduation ceremony, we were on to the going on to the restaurant and it was just she and I in the car, we had multiple cars. And she said, Mom, I'll never forget my freshman year in college, I came out of one of my classes and I thought, were my mom and dad lying to me? Because everything that she was being taught in that class was the opposite of what, what we had taught her. And she said, I can't, I came to understand my teachers were so liberal leaning. And, and, and not teaching me the truth. But if she had not had that foundation being taught in the home, she might have just been duped and gone right along as so many young people are. If they're not, if these ideas are not being countered at home, the, the child is just going to assume that what she's hearing from teacher or from university professor is true. Okay, so let's turn now to the introduction of the healing of America. We're gonna talk about the attacks on our country. And we have to understand how things have become unhinged and how they've gotten broke before we know how to fix it. Now, the greatness of America, let's see this next slide. The greatness of America is still a viable reality. The mighty door which has been set in place to guard our greatness has become un dangerously unhinged. And it's it's hard to close that door. The, the hinges, so to speak, are loose. And so the dilemma lies in, it's you know awkwardly ajar now, what can we do to strengthen and tighten these hinges up? These hinges being uh, our founders intended for them to have an edge, for uh, us citizens to be educated, for us to be morally and ethically bound and taught, and uh, for us to have a government of the people by the people, so they put checks and balances in the, the constitution. And then they wanted us to be a light to the world, to be a model nation so we could elevate the quality of life for those around the world, not to, not to be a dictator. So let's look at that first uh, educated citizen. This is what we're gonna talk about today. That, you know, the founders knew that people believe according 
to how, or they behave according to how they believe. And so they knew that unless we studied certain things, we would not be able to maintain what they'd given us, this, this great success formula. And what, what they wanted us to be taught, particularly when it came to education, and they put it in that Northwest Ordinance in 1787, they wanted education to be comprised of knowledge, religion, and morality. They knew that those three things were uh, necessary to maintain this free and prosperous society that they were had established. Um, and so it's interesting that that how education is one of the most neglected areas, one of the neglected hinges, because we have we removed the religion and morality component. And, uh, and it's accounting for a lot of squeaks in the door but as we've done that. The moral and ethical society, look, our founding, uh, our founding principle in the 5,000 year leap, that wonderful book I refer to a lot, says that the most reliable basis for sound government and just human relations, the way we get along is based on natural law, God's law. And the fourth principle says that a without religion, a free people cannot be maintained. They knew our religious liberties were so important. Let's see that next slide. John Adam, our second president said, our constitution was made only for moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. If they were gonna base this government on God's law, natural law, then people had to be godly. They had to be you know, a, a religious. They had to be studying godly law in order to be morally strong and virtuous and, and electing virtuous leaders. And they knew that very first amendment protected their, our ability to, um, to practice our religion according to the dictates of our own conscience. And then uh, the, the third hinge talks about uh, the, the checks and balances that they gave us. They knew that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, that's Lord Acton. And so they made these three branches to have certain checks and balances. And we talked about last week, the 16th and 17th amendment really, you know, con with the income tax grew the government. So it grew that executive branch. And the 17th Amendment removed the senator from being accountable to the state legislature. So no one's looking out for the states anymore. It kind of removed that vertical check and, and balance. And then there's some, you know, uh, horizontal checks and balances that were removed because the executive branch has gotten so much stronger. And the Supreme Court, that our judicial branch is now making law. They were supposed to just guard law, but they're making law now. And so that's, and we'll talk uh, the third week about uh, the attacks directly on the constitution. And then we talk about um, on the fourth week, how they are founders intended for us to be, let's see that next slide, a light on the hill that, uh, you know, we had a manifest destiny to be an example and a blessing to the entire human race. And, and, and that um, uh, Con Professor Conrad Cherry stated that they fancied our founders, us as a, a remnant of the House of Israel, as a new Israel, a people chosen for the awesome responsibility of serving as a light to the nations, a city that is set upon a hill, which our earlier presidents uh, and, and leaders have evoked that phrase from uh, the Old Testament, New Testament. So our founders never intended for us to be a dictator. Uh, out in the world or a watchdog. And, and we're going to see how, how, we, how we've made entangling alliances that have really gone in contradiction to that Monroe doctrine. And we'll talk about that in a few weeks. 
And, and you know, now as we are, have made these alliances through the last several decades, our, the alliances we make with countries, their enemies now become our enemies. And they, you know, we hadn't even done anything. And, and so some of the problem behind that. So we have a repair job to do. We've got to reestablish and, and repair this door to get in, into good working order. So once again, we're gonna talk about some of the problems, how they came to be, so we know how to heal it, which is our seminar number four, which I just love seminar number four. So let's see the next slide, the attacks on the founder's educational dream. The founders emphasized the key to the survival of American progress was uh, uh, would be this idea of universal education. Um, Principle 23, let's see that next slide in the 5,000 year leap says, a free people cannot survive as a republic without a broad program of general education. So remember, they wanted reading, writing, and arithmetic along with morality and um, uh, morality and religion taught. That's what they, they, they wanted a broad general uh, electorate that was educated. That's the only way that we were gonna be able to maintain this government by the voice of the people, by the people. Isn't it interesting in last election in 2020, 65% uh, of the, that voting block ages 18 through 24 voted liberal and they turned out 11% more than any other age group was that 18 to 24. And I think some of that is because of the radicalization that these kids are getting in school over the last several um, decades of, of kind of a secular godless idea of um, you know extremism and, and, and not really teaching the beauties of our founding or the miracle stories of our founding, but just you know the abusive, racist, hypocritical nature of our founding and it's riling and radicalizing them up. I used to tell my kids, I send you off to, to college and you count you come back radicalized and they would laugh. But now they can completely see what was going on in their universities. In fact, all my girls have said, all three of my daughters have said they will homeschool their children uh, because they can see for themselves when you teach children the truth, they go out in the world and they have an experience with the world. But that foundation, if you've laid that foundation and you continue to lay that foundation, I continue to send morning devotionals to my 28 year old, 25 year old, 23. We never stop teaching. And grandmothers, we've heard beautiful examples in classes what grandmothers are doing to shore up the foundation of their grandchildren. We never stop teaching. We are the best teachers our children and grandchildren will ever have. We are the most qualified to teach them what they need to be, what, what they need to know as they go out in the world to discern truth from error. And, and you will see that these uh, educational reformers knew that and they feared the influence of the mother. And so they did certain things to minimize the mother's uh, influence. Okay, so our founding fathers knew that we had to be universally educated uh, if we were going to maintain what they gave us. John Adams went over to France and he was astonished that out of the 24 French, 24 million Frenchmen, only a small fraction, only half a million could read or write. Now, our founding fathers rejected this uh, European idea of only the elites are educated. And Thomas Jefferson said this. Let's see that slide. No other sure foundation can be devised for the preservation of freedom and happiness 
preach a crusade against ignorance, establish and improve the law for educating the common people. Okay, so this there, there's known as two cycles of education in our history. The first cycle went for about 225 years from about 1607, when those little ships sailed up the James River and established Jamestown and then what was known as Williamsburg. Uh, so from about 1607 to about the mid 1800s, that was a remarkable period of about 225 years of uh, learning. This first cycle was really, there was a goal of excellence in education from almost our earliest colonial period. And maybe it was because, you know, by 1646, there was about 134 graduates of Oxford, Cambridge and Dublin universities that had actually migrated during the earliest of periods to America and, and hence kind of set the pattern of a, a strict discipline and educational preparation for their lives. It's interesting that John Quincy Adams uh, said um, when his son was 18, or, or John Quincy Adams, when he was 18, he was the son of John Adams. He said he was proficient in Latin, French, Greek, and he had also studied English and French literature and knew many of the uh, Greek and Roman classics and histories and the, the theorems of Eusolid. I don't even know what that is. At 18, he understood plane trigonometry, algebra, decibel fractions, ge geometrical proportions, and conic sections. However, he said, my father, John Adams, said that my son was still a little weak in calculus. And as we read about some of the education of those founders, we know Sam Adams went to Harvard at 14. Thomas Jefferson, by the time he was 16, was attending William and Mary, and he was tutored in the law for five years, where he said he had 12 to 14-hour uh, days of studying and learning, and he knew five languages uh, when he was a young man. And, and, and it was said of Thomas Jefferson that when he uh, was examined for the bar, he knew more than the men that were examining him. And so at, at this period in history, in the 16, 17, 1800s, direct responsibility was placed on who? The parent to see that the child received the best possible education. And it was in the late 1700s when they were starting to experience the first fruits of freedom under this new constitution that Noah Webster said this. Let's see that slide. Now, Noah Webster. He's the author of the great 1828 Webster Dictionary that it's the only dictionary you want to use. And he was a, a member of the House of Representatives in Connecticut and the author of little spellers and readers that children were learning uh, to read by uh, spelling, spelling books. He said, all government originates in families and if neglected there, it will hardly exist in society. The foundation of all free government and, and of all social order must be laid in the families and in the discipline of youth. The education of youth is an employment of more consequence than making laws and preaching the gospel. Wow. Because it lays the foundation of both which the law and the gospel rest for success. Isn't that interesting? The great Noah Webster, the Webster Dictionary. You know, recently I heard um, Charlie Cook, you, you know, who runs that Turning Point USA and on the college campuses say that educating our children will be the most important issue of our, of our time. Education of children is in his opinion. And I have to say, I agree. So during the early formation of our country, 
it, it was expected that that children would have the basics of, of reading and writing before they were even allowed to go to school. In fact, the Puritan leaders, let's see that next slide, enacted in 1642, a law requiring that the parent, uh, that parents see that their children could read well enough to understand religious principles and capital laws before that uh, they would go on to be educated. So home education was very common in America. And, and like we said, most children knew how to read before they entered school. It's so interesting uh, how many of the colonial leaders talked about how they learned how to read because their parents taught them the Bible, going through mastering the little letters and syllables phonetically, hearing those scriptural passages being read to them. I'll never forget my mama. She was uh, born in the deep country of Missouri in 1930s. She said every night her parents would read to the three little girls on the country in the, um, in the farm uh, from the Bible before they would go to bed. And last uh, summer, we went to the Lincoln Presidential Library in Springfield, Illinois. And there's a little uh, exhibit in that museum that talks about how Lincoln learned how to read um, by his mama teaching him through the Bible. So that was, you know, the reader of the day, the reader to learn to read was, was the Bible. And so it's um, Noah Webster's uh, uh, I think it's a little reader that he put for the Grammatical Institute of the English Language and American Spelling Book. Okay, spelling books. 100 million copies of that book was sold in all of America. And, and these little books contain spiritual and uh, spiritual rhymes and biblical principles. How many of you have heard of the McGuffey readers? There was a wonderful man in 1836, William Holmes McGuffey. A wonderful teacher, one of the greatest educators of all times. He was a gifted teacher and he produced a set of educational primers, these little readers that taught children of all ages to read and to comprehend. And he wrote these McGuffey readers and it, there's about eight of them. And according to, you know, the little preschool on up to kind of a high school level um, uh, reading. And all these primers included aspects of high moral character and God-centered principles. And they were kind of indicative of this first cycle of American education, giving the children uh, a basic in reading and writing and arithmetic and oral and written communications. And it wove into the readers uh, an understanding of the basics of literature and music and art forms and the study of nature and the basics of history, particularly American history and geography. And then the basics of civics, which is civics is like our responsibility as citizens what we need to do in the, the um, American system of constitutional government. Now, all these little basics are woven into these readers. And even the basics of hygiene and physical and mental well-being and respect for elders. And, and, and McGuffey placed a strong significance on spiritual values with references to the Ten Commandments and the Golden Rule and little popular Bible stories in these readers. And these readers became national bestsellers. By the turn of the century, the early 1900s, every child in America was studying from one or more of this kind of reader. Can you imagine that? Your child learning, you know, with these topics in their readers. I remember my readers, I'm 54 years old, was, you know, C. Jane Hawk, C. Dick 
ride. There was no moral lessons in the readers that you know I was engaging in in the in the 1970s. During this time when the McGuffeys were being used, 120 million copies of the McGuffey readers were in print and they were unmatched by any other publication at the time except for the Bible and Noah Webster's dictionary. And parents and community leaders were, uh, uh, were expected um, to drill into these students the, these traits of trustworthiness and loyal and uh, being loyal and friendly and courteous and obedient and cheerful and thrifty and brave and clean and reverent. And these, these attributes that were in these little readers was what would become incorporated into the laws uh, of the Boy Scouts of America. Now, the Boy Scouts of America was established in 1910, but isn't it interesting in a 100 year time as we pulled out, you know, any reference to um, morality or emphasizing God's law from the, from the Boy Scouts where they were, you know, originally Boy Scouts, they, their little uh, code or their little theme or <laughs> that they would recite would talk about being morally straight and honorable and as we, uh, you know, not only pulled these attributes and these teaching and these, you know, spiritual values from the schools, we pulled them out of the Boy Scouts. And uh, just three years ago in 2020, 110 years after the establishment of the Boy Scouts, it filed uh, bankruptcy. And who knows if the Boy Scouts will even be around in another decade. So let's see that next little picture. So to, for two years, I uh, bought all the McGuffey readers. I bought them online at Amazon. I think mine were $92, but we have some uh, uh, little links that you can click on that they're free PDF version, but I just wanted the, the physical books. So in seventh and eighth grade, a part of our little morning devotional, my little girl would read a page or two at the McGuffey's and she read them all. And the wonderful thing about the little stories is it has questions afterwards. And so we would have a little discussion and we, we would talk about what she was reading. It would just take about, I don't know, three or four minutes each day. I'd have her read a page or two. And sometimes they were so old fashioned, we would just laugh, but they were so sweet. And so I would really recommend, you know, ditch the Disney books, you know, get the McGuffey readers, grandma, when your little kids come over, get in the habit of reading a little cute little story and then having a discussion. I think it's a, it's a beautiful investment. And so um, anyways, our founding fathers in the Federalist Papers, James Madison said, look, it is our responsibility to be able to improve and perpetuate upon the, uh, the American economic and political systems that we gave you. So you need to be studying these things. And, and we know that they said religion and morality were indispensable supports to the government. And so these readers are, are part of helping our children discern truth from error. And so they'll know it when they hear it or don't hear it when they're away from us. So Alexis de Tocqueville, remember that great author, Frenchman who wrote Democracy in America in 1831, that came over to America after about 50 years of our founding because he was so darn curious about why this little fledgling new nation was doing so well. We were making more income per capita than the, his, the our European counterparts. And he made several observations about religion, about motherhood. And this observation is interesting. It cannot be doubted in the democracy in America that he's written that in the United States, the instruction of the people powerfully contributes to the support of the democratic republic. 
And such must always be the case, I believe, where the instruction which enlightens the understanding is not separated from moral education. Okay, so he saw the importance of moral education as, as, as it pertained to the, uh, the success formula, maintaining the success formula that the founders were going to give us. He also noticed, he was astonished, he said, let's see the next slide, the knowledge that the children had that they possessed concerning the Constitution and, and the American, how the American system operated. He was amazed uh, at this little book, this little uh, book of uh, questions. It's called The Catechism of the Constitution that uh, many of the children were studying in the schools in order to understand the Constitution. It's a series of uh, a little book of questions and, and answers, kind of the Socratic method. method. So uh, Cleon Skousen, who wrote these Healing of America seminars that we study, he added um, amendments 13 through 27 uh, to the catechism. And so we sell those on the Moms for America store. For a few years, I would read uh, over breakfast um, just a little page of these questions about the Constitution. And oftentimes, I didn't know the answers either, but it caused us to, uh, to learn uh, and to study them together. So I would recommend getting this little catechism uh, book updated and, and teaching and familiarizing your children and grandchildren um, with the Constitution uh, through, through this book here, because this is how... Um, de Tocqueville noticed how these young kids knew so much through the study of this uh, catechism here. So the founders formula for education propelled us into world leadership, not only in education, but we began to become a leader in industries and science and medicine and agriculture. And, and what it did is it produced an enviable standard of living here in America. And we were also a charitable nation. We, we wanted to help. We didn't want to conquer and, and, you know, take over by conquest. And so this is why you've heard me give this statistic a lot, but within a, a hundred years of living under these principles, we went uh, in 1905, even though we had 6% of the world's population, we were producing over 50% of the world's wealth and country after country was trying to emulate our educational and our governmental system of success because the fruits of it were so good. And this is when you began to see the immigration to America because there seemed to be all the best and greatest opportunities here and students from various countries were coming to this land where it seemed to, you know, we were on the leading edge of information and everything that the world had to offer. And some nations were fearful that there was going to be a brain drain because <laughs> the best minds were wanting to come here uh, to America. And the founding fathers were correct, you know, as, as, as they understood that when we provide everyone an, an opportunity for universal education, it raises everyone's level of standard of living. And it really, this idea was, was, uh, uh, was what got the attention of other nations around the world. Okay, so now we're gonna uh, go into, oh, strap in, because this is where it gets rocky and rolling and we start to kind of clutch our bosom like, yes, yes, we know, we saw this, this was our experience. The second cycle of education that kind of began in the mid 1800s, these uh, attacks on these uh, ideas that our founders uh, laid for us. 
And it was primarily against this universal religious concept of teaching these ideas that our founder said, look, it's self-evident that when you teach these ways, you will have success. And now there was going to be an attack, particularly uh, upon, you know, uh, religion in education. So this new cycle of education began to emerge in the mid 1800s, and it was called kind of an experimental or exploratory uh, implementation of, of concepts which um, rejected the founding fathers' notions of what they considered to be sound. So let's see that next slide. Have you heard of a man named Horace Mann? He was an educational reformer. He was born in 1796 died in 1859. He was a member of the House of Representatives in Massachusetts. He was a, a president of Antioch College. Did you know today there's over a hundred schools named after him? He was known as the father of public education. Well, guess what? He was a student of Karl Marx, <laughs> who we know Karl Marx is the father of communism. He's an atheist. He's a not a good man to you know want to be a disciple of. But uh, Horace Mann studied um, Karl Marx. And uh, about the time that the McGuffey readers were being developed, Horace Mann began, be, began a crusade against the McGuffey concepts of moral education. It's interesting that there's even a statue in front of the Massachusetts State House of him next to Daniel Webster, who was a wonderful man uh, that stands today. <clears throat> And so he advocated that children were not really responsible for their own instincts and um, they were to be looked upon as innately good and that an elite educational establishment needed to be organized to save our society through their manipulated opinions of how education should be administered. And that mankind was to be the measure of all things, not God. So whatever the feelings or the popular trends are, the consensus of your feelings uh, is the measure of, of how society should be should go and that children should be taught that there's no absolute right or wrong there's just no absolute values and that one's decisions is based on particular situation hence the the phrase situational ethics he actually uh, said in one of his writings that what the church has been, this is Horace Mann, he said, what the church has been for medieval man, old-fashioned man, the public schools must become for the democratic and rational man. God will be replaced by the concept of the public good. The common schools shall create a far more seeing intelligence and a pure morality than has ever existed <laughs> among the community of men. So we kind of like this idea of collectivism, okay? That's how you can begin to control when you can get everyone to kind of go along. And hence, we kind of saw it with COVID. Everyone wear masks, everyone wear vaccines and you'll be safe. Don't ask questions, just do it kind of thing. So he, um, his goal was to, to create a more non-sectorian school, uh, school system. So a secular, not religious system. He wanted the new religion. He wanted a new religion with the state as its true church and education as its Messiah. So certainly we know and we recognize that this conflicts with what our founding fathers, original principles of religion and morality 
All right, so now we're gonna, uh, our education is gonna begin to experiment with some of his ideas as he goes, uh, as we go now into the turn of the century, the early 1900s. And the result of, of him and his ideas was the emergence of kind of a, a sinister, a new philosophy to challenge the, you know, what our moorings had been for the first hundred years. And this kind of philosophy of a new world order was going to emerge. Have you heard of this? It's called secular humanism, secular meaning non-religious and humanism meaning a, a kind of a, a separation from the divine. And it stresses the value and the goodness of the human being. And so we kind of seek for rational ways of solving human problems instead of turning to God. And, you know, really this humanism movement started out as a Christian movement uh, in the uh, 14 and 1500s by leading churchmen and, and the religious hum humanists at that time emphasized uh, promoting science and architecture and homes and better human relations and development of the arts uh, as a way to find more um, beauty and happiness in life. Not, not just looking for happiness in the next life and enduring, but finding happiness now. And this version of humanism spread to America and was embraced by our family fathers. I always tell my children that, look, Satan will tell a hundred truths to weave in one, one lie. And so, you know, this whole idea of humanism started out good. However, this new version of humanism embraced by Horace Mann put an emphasis more on physical pleasure, more than just happiness. And so the disciples of this new kind of humanism stressed the indulgences of ancient Greece with the hedonism, hedonism of Greece. So kind of the pursuit of um, sensual self-indulgence or the orgies of uh, Rome, group orgies, a group sex party. And so it, it took humanism now to a physical realm. Secular humanism teaches that there is no creator there are no inalienable God-given rights. There's no fixed standard of morality, no a divine purpose of life. Man does not have a soul. Man has no responsibility to the supreme being for the way he treats his fellow man. Let's see that next slide. That there is no future life and that there are no divine judgments. Okay, so that is completely so. So basically, humanism says, look, we look to man, not God to solve problems. Right. And it's the opposite of what Benjamin Franklin gave us. We talked about the last few weeks and all the founders agreed on of this American religion that needed to be taught that uh, all sound religions adhere to these tenets that the uh, creator made all things and that he has revealed the moral code of right and wrong and that we will be held responsible to him someday for the way we treated each other and that we will live beyond this life and that we will be judged uh, by this creator, okay? So you can see how polar opposite this uh, humanistic, uh, anti-God, uh, atheist type of, of thinking is the secular um, humanism. It's interesting, in France, let me go to the full view. In France, during the 1700s, secular humanists, uh, secular humanism uh, was not only depressing, but it was um, dangerous. And uh, there was a large group of revolutionaries during the French Revolution, they were secular humanists, that gained control of uh, the government and uh, 
and they were atheists and they wanted to make atheism the national religion of France. And they indulged in excesses and violence and the destruction of people. So finally the people revolted against uh, these secular humanists and uh, turned their country over to Napoleon to restore order. But um, secular humanism was far less apparent during the 1800s because it didn't, it didn't, it was so contrary to, you know, uh, what had worked, but it, it didn't die out. And um, hence you see a, a resurgence of it through uh, Horace Mann and some other powerful groups that espouse secular humanism in the early 1900s. These, uh, and these humanistic philosophies began to demand more and more change in the American systems that had been, um, um, you know, that had come before us. And, and they eventually infiltrated the educational um, circles. So let's see who, who these groups were that were espousing this. Let's see that next slide. They were the um, populists. So I'm, I'm gonna speak to them a little bit out of the order. I'm just gonna go in the order of our book. But uh, remember those populists were the ones that made popular the 16th and 17th uh, amendments. Uh, and they wanted uh, that 16th amendment and the 17th amendment because it put us on the road to socialism. Uh, centralizing power in in you know small groups, the executive branch, and allowing um, their purposes to transpire more quickly, self-serving purposes uh, in businesses, and 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 those were also known as the masterminders, uh, wealthy industrial and finance leaders, master planners, actually uh, the Fords, the Rockefellers, the Carnegies the Vanderbilts, they wanted the federal government to be under their influence so they could take a more forceful role in regulating the economy and curtailing any competition uh, that they might be experiencing. And they could do that if they could buy off senators, you know, if they could be beholden to them, not to the state legislatures. And, and if they could kind of lull the people into all these programs of the government taking care of them because now we're collecting more and more taxes because they instituted the 16th amendment, the direct income tax. And so as the coffers in the government got bigger, we began to you know come up with more programs and not look to the states to be accountable for their part of the budget, but the, the government was robbing us directly through direct taxes, which are, are in the constitution. It prohibited the direct tax, but the 16th Amendment superseded that part of the Constitution that the founders gave us. And so the wealthy industrial and financial leaders were all for the 16th and 17th Amendment. And we're going to talk about this even more. This is a concept that I had to hear over and over and over again before I began to understand these enemies of freedom and why they wanted to uh, attack education and attack a constitution and get religion, uh, you know, out of out of the public square. Also, there were um, a, a group, the third group was made up of economic, economists and political leaders who were intrigued by the theories of socialism, okay? Socialism competes with capitalism. It's an economic philosophy that puts the power again in the hands of the few, okay? So uh, the government takes care of everyone instead of a free market um, uh, prosperity economics where everyone has the right to try to buy it you know, sell the, and, and even to fail, but they, they had the freedom to, you know, to try uh, and, and form businesses or to be as successful economically as they wanted to. 
And so um, it's interesting that Marxism wanted, you know, he didn't like this idea of, you know, the power in the people. He, he wanted concentrated power, that he was an elitist. And so he thought that he could spur an economic revolution. When he died, though, that the his, his ideas were maintained and were taken up in Frankfurt, Germany. These Frankfurt schools thought, no, it's not going to be an economic revolution. It's going to be a cultural or social uh, revolution where we can um, oppress people and get them to rise up based on race and gender and class. And that is the roots and the underpinnings of um, critical race theory that we see today. Critical race theory is really the grandchild of the Frankfurt School that studied Marxism. And it's this whole idea of a social revolution. And we're seeing that, that you know, we can get the people to be critical of Western thought or families or traditional religion or morals or capitalism or historical thought. And we're seeing that played out today as kids are going to school and becoming radicalized and coming home little social justice warriors. Okay. And so some of that had its root in, in these um, uh, economists and political leaders and even leading intellectual, this fourth group, a cadre of leading intellectuals who rejected the spiritual and moral foundation of the America formula and wanted it eliminated um, from education. And hence we see these educators, uh, Horace Mann. And now we're going to see, let's see the next slide. Just as Horace Mann died, hence comes along a man by the name of John Dewey. Now, he was born in 1859, the same year Horace Mann died was the year that he was born, and he would live to 92 years old. Dang, a ripe old age. I'm, I'm sorry he, he lived that long because he did some, some real harm. He is not of the Dewey Decimal System, okay? So he had nothing to do with that library classification system. He was actually, get this, Mr. John Dewey, he was the president of the American Humanist Association. Well, that tells you everything we need to know about him. He was a human humanist. He was an atheist as well. He signed the Humanist Manifesto, consenting to the false principles it contained, that these principles contained atheism, evolution, society-based values, immorality, and the acceptability of euthanasia and suicide. Now, who was he? Well, he would go on to teach for 26 years at Columbia University. Uh, teach it was called at then it was called the Columbia Teachers College in New York City, and and that program graduated more university uh, presidents and higher education leaders uh, than any other institution in the country at that time. Columbia University it was called the Columbia's Teachers College, and. Um, he believed that humanism was actually a religion and that the teachers were prophets. He, he admitted to his atheist beliefs when he declared, these are his writings, faith in the prayer hearing God is an unproved and outmoded faith. There is no God, there is no soul, hence there are no needs for the props of traditional religion. There is no room for fixed natural law or moral absolutes. And he is one of our uh, leading educational reformers. If you were to look he and Horace Mann up on Wikipedia, they are very kind of them. Extol all their, you know, many uh, advancements in education. And this is really who these men were. So what 
John Dewey did was he took Horace Mann's ideas that were already in place now believing, of course, that the education was the going to be the new messiah. And he took man's philosophies one step further and put them into an educational delivery system, so to speak. So in an effort to modernize education, he encouraged the abandonment, let's see that next slide, of the one-room schoolhouse concept, okay? And, um, and let's see that next slide. Here's the, our little one-room schoolhouse. Remember, this is how young, little house on the prairie kind of thing, where all ages were um, educated in uh, a little one room, oftentimes a red house school building. When I go to Amish country, I live about an hour and a half from Amish country in uh, Pennsylvania. They, all the children, all the Amish children are educated in these little one room schoolhouses. And, and they have these schoolhouses like every oh, mile, mile and a half. I remember the little guy told us. And I would see these little schoolhouses all over. And I would see, you know, big kids like 16 year olds uh, playing with little seven year olds and, and how they kind of looked over uh, one another. He wanted uh, this idea of dividing students, John Dewey, into age groups. And we saw that they, you know, move the kids and split them up into elementaries and middle schools and high schools and it broke up the families and sent them to different schools and this had the effect of isolating family members from one another it was so interesting there was a time when I, we had the five kids in the home and all my kids went to a private school called American Heritage and I would have the 16 17 year old daughter drive you know four, three of the, or four of the five kids to school every day. And when the kids would come home, they would tell on each other. They'd say, hey, we saw Frank put his arm around this girl, or I saw little Alvin out. Who was that kid that was bothering you? And they kind of looked out for one another and kind of kept each other on the straight and narrow. So when you got rid of the one-room schoolhouse and divided the kids, what began to happen is they began to replace the family with peer pressure. So what your friends thought was more important and no one was really able to watch over you. The two things that were the most detrimental, John Dewey said, to a child's education and to its progression was the mother and was God. So they removed the influence of mother in a child's life by making the school day longer, all right? So dividing the family so no one can tattletale or check up on each other and making the day longer. I mean, oftentimes these kids are gone from 7.30 until five. I have my daughter leaves at eight in the morning and doesn't get home till six at night because she has you know, her little sports after school. That's a long time to be away from mother. And then they knew that, um, they could control the child if God is removed from their life and mother. And so hence we began to see um, in the school of uh, prayer and Bible reading. And we'll talk about that in a moment, being removed from the school systems. Let's see the next slide. John Dewey incorporated uh, into this system, his own philosophies. And he would write a book called Democracy and Education in 1916. Now, a lot of bad things were going on in our country at this time. Remember 1913, Woodrow Wilson was the president. That's when the 16th amendment was passed. The 17th amendment was passed. The Federal Reserve 
reserve, nothing federal or no reserves in that <laughs> institution uh, came to be. And, and this whole idea here, he's at the forefront of education in our country. And in, in this book, it was a kind of a revolutionary approach to child training that had never been seen before in the school systems. And he called his brainchild progressive education. This is what Mr. Dewey called it. Even liberal educators uh, were leery of what was in this book. They called it regressive education because he received, John Dewey received his PhD from Johns Hopkins uh, where uh, a man by the name of a German social philosopher was studied and uh, was indoctrinated him with this vision of a welfare state with the schools serving as the change agent to bring about this welfare state in, in our generation. So this is what Dewey was studying in his you know, advanced uh, PhD doctorate program at Johns Hopkins. And even contemporary uh, educators treated Dewey with uh, a respectful demeanor but in, in this book and his ideas, but expressed professional horror when they saw that what he was really promoting with this progressive education, the social system through education, uh, this, let me read this here. His book is a noble, generous effort to solve social programs through an educational system. Unfortunately, the methods he proposed could not solve these problems. They would merely destroy the educational system. This was one of the, uh, his contemporary educators at that time, his, his observation of what John Dewey was putting forth. Remember, Dewey looked upon schools as a wonderful opportunity to indoctrinate uh, our American youth in the virtuous uh, the virtues of a glorious age where private property and the free market and open competition and profits would be eliminated, all right? He actually would go on to visit the Soviet Union in the 1920s, and instead of recognizing it as the wasteland of, re of revolutionary dissolution uh, and widespread destruction of human values that it was in the 1920s, John Dewey described the Soviet Union as a popular culture impregnated with aesthetic quality, okay? And so the philosophies of Horace Mann and John Dewey became the center pillars, mamas and grandmothers, you need to understand of this new anti-God educational philosophy and systems that would plague our country for, for what, I mean, we're seeing the fruits of the seeds that they planted and what a contrast it was to the Bible-based ideals that were a part of Americans beginning. Now, remember, if you were to ask anyone in the educational systems today, they've all studied Horace Mann and John Dewey's uh, systems and, and ideas, and they, they will speak quite glowingly. We have lots and lots of schools named after these men, but you have to understand this is really what was going on behind them. Now, at, at first, their philosophies and delivery systems were resisted, truthfully, by many Americans, but something is going to happen now at this period in American history that is going to uh, direct and, and distract the citizens away from traditional education and, and a God-centered uh, base. What happens? World War II. And, uh, and so, you know, we see the sailors and the airmen coming home after the war and they have a GI Bill of Rights and a lot of kids now are able to go to college for the first time and adult education programs are expanded. And then something happened in 1952 that I, I didn't know about until I learned about it here. 
Did you know the Russians beat us to space? They launched the first satellite into space and that caused horror in the hearts of American citizens because this was right during the Cold War where many people, especially conservatives, feared the Soviet Union and they said, oh, I'd rather be dead than red. And so they were afraid that we were uh, falling behind. And so what, what the citizens did is they allowed the education to be changed, what our children were being taught, because we were convinced that we were falling behind because Russia beat us to space. Although we will learn it was our technology that actually got that Sputnik up into, we collaborated with the Russians. And so we used, you know, these uh, enemies of freedom and enemies of God used this as an opportunity to, uh, place in the hearts of the parents that, oh, we needed to start to teach our children differently, that we needed um, to get back to the basics and advance different types of curriculum. And so that means we needed to maybe remove some of the God or history of their founding fathers or morality to make way for this new advanced curriculum because we were falling behind. That was the thought process. And so also uh, what came from that, and, and so keep in mind when you take God out of uh, you know schools and morality, anti-God, and moral decay will ultimately creep in. And that's what we see now. And we also saw during the 1960s, you know, all the civil rights and all the um, integrated, my husband will say forced integrated. And that's an interesting topic when you, when you tell black children and black teachers, they're not good enough that we need to put you with a white school teacher uh, and what that does, uh, you know, to, to that race. So we had integration of schools and, and increased opportunities for women to leave the home. We saw TV dinners, nutrition went down. Uh, we have the backdrop of the Vietnam War and we see TV starting to dom dominate the world and convince kids, indeed, there is a generational gap and your parents just don't understand. And you know, parents began to feel uneasy about this anti-family, anti-God focus that was beginning to permeate now, you know, as we're taking God out of the school systems. And then we also see this hippie lifestyle culture with the flower children and the drugs and the music and the acceptance of atheism and anti-godless uh, religion and anti-prayer and draft dodging at, you know, attitudes. And what do you see? Ha ha, the radical decline in academic achievement now. My, my husband always said, when you don't have God with you, when you're not praying, if you don't say a little prayer before a test, when you don't have the spirit to, you know, help recall things to your memory, you don't do as well. And, and this is where we began to see a decline in the tests. And so by 18, let's see uh, that next slide. By 1983, studies were showing that there was a rising tide of mediocrity. Uh, that was threatening our nation. And these are just some current headlines of the day. Math scores falling, pandemic prompts historic decline in achievement, the unsurprising decline of child literacy. You know, as I flew out here on the airplane, I always read the newspaper and the flight attendant said to me, oh, I just love someone reading the newspaper. You never see that anymore. And I'm like, oh yeah, I like the newspaper. So I actually ripped out it's just, I got this last Wednesday, students grasp of US civics and history in decline. It said just 13% of our nation's eighth graders are proficient in US history last year. And it also says in another um, study, math and reading data uh, was, we had the biggest dip in 30 years. 
And as far as the inattention, he said, I think it's just our inattention to history and civics that has caused the decline. He, he actually calls us in the article, this is one of the Sputnik, that's the Russian satellite moments that says we've got to say the schools aren't doing their part to prepare Amer American citizens. Let this be an alarm bell. This was in the Washington Post, a very liberal. So we're seeing all the scores now starting to decrease in the last several decades. Let's see that next slide here. And uh, it's interesting, uh, in the 1948 is when um, the Supreme Court, McCollum versus Board of Education prohibited teaching of religion in school. In 1962, no prayers were allowed in school. In, in 1963, no Lord's Prayer or Bible reading. And I lived in areas in Oregon where we couldn't even pledge because it said the word God. There was a study that came out, uh, let's see, that showed the how many uh, references to moral lessons in the little readers. Look, 16 out of, out of 25 pages, there were 16 pages that had references to uh, morals, commandments, golden rule, Bible stories, that kind of thing. And then we as uh, a big drop off starting in the late 1800s. And now the readers uh, nowadays that children are learning to read have absolutely no morals. This is why you need to get those McGuffey readers. And then you can see, let's see the next slide. We went from teaching American history to just teaching uh, civics, the study of citizens and their interaction with government to social studies, which is just the study of human interactions in societies. And uh, my kids went to middle school that there was a big round globe in front of the school to emphasize our global humanity, our global citizenship over our civic duty. And they began to teach, you know, uh, the horrors of capitalism and our, our founding fathers as pervert, degenerate hypocrites, and that there was nothing exceptional about America and that we need to embrace our, our global humanity. And that is when uh, we started our cottage meeting in that little town of Hood River, Oregon, because we knew our children were under attack and we had to fight back. And so this is what we've seen. Let's see the next um, slide. And and then this whole notion that the Constitution is broken, that it's uh, it's or it's a living document, so we have to keep changing it. And I would say, well, if it's a living document, why are you trying to kill it by all these changes? But that's kind of the whole idea that if you can marginalize uh, the our founding fathers, we'll marginalize the the doctrine and the documents that they gave us. And so also during this period of time in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, there was um, a huge campaign, let's see that next slide, to level serious charges against the reputation and character of our founding fathers. As I was I've been driving across the country, I listened to a commentator yesterday say how he asked his child what he knew about um, George Washington. And the only thing that child knew was that George Washington owned slaves. So out of all the beautiful stories and contributions of the father of our country, that's the only thing kids know about our founding fathers. So if you can marginalize their life, you will marginalize their teachings and their writings. And so this, there's been huge campaigns, and we'll talk about this uh, in uh, section three of this class. Also, it's interesting to understand that when uh, Clinton was accused of that affair with the little intern Monica Lewinsky in the 1900s, is when they um, uh, brought forth that whole story of Thomas Jefferson, you know, being a pervert and, and a racist and having, you know, all these children with his slave, uh, Sally Hemming. 
And so if you could, if you could, you know, be convinced that's just how the founding fathers were, well, then what Clinton did was really not so bad. This is just how these men have always been, even with the beginning founders of our nation. So it's interesting how they, you know, brought forth, uh, uh, fabricated this story. And in the real Thomas Jefferson, it completely refutes that story. Half of these books that I'm showing you here, half of them are just the sources that they cite and they're easy to read. I would get all these books and begin to read them to your children. So your children will fall in love with these great men. Okay, let's go to our next slide. I think we've gone over. So I'm just going to call it, uh, call it quits here. But this last quote, uh, uh, came forth in the 80s uh, by um, a leader of the National Commission of Excellence in Education. It says that an unfriendly foreign power had attempted to impose on America the mediocre educational performance that exists today. We might well have viewed it as an act of war. As it stands, we have allowed this to happen to ourselves. Woo. All right, so mamas, we need to remember the greatness of America is real. But this mighty door that's been set in place to guard its greatness is has become dangerously unhinged, and that's what we're going to continue to study the next three weeks. Next uh, next week, we'll talk about the assault on the moral fiber of America. We'll go to the full screen now, uh, Z. So seminar three isn't meant to be depressing, but it is kind of chilling because we can recognize that a lot of these things have taken place on our watch or we have seen the effects of a you know godless curriculum being taught to us and being taught to our children and grandchildren. But remember, we can't fix something that we don't understand how it got broke. And you need to understand there was a concerted effort on the part of entities and people and enemies of God and freedom in America to fundamentally change what our founding fathers gave us. Now, this nation will endure and God will heal our land. But, you, you know, we, we need to have a hope that we won't fall, nor will the Constitution be wiped out. I mean, Thomas Jefferson in 1826 26 said these principles of the constitution would be eternal, meaning they would go on into a, a millennial reign. You know, these are godly principles, but we have got to wake up. We've got to do more uh, than we have been doing when it comes to teaching our children and, and bringing God back uh, into the home and into their teachings and into the schools and into the universities. Now, I want you to know that I have experimented with my five kids. They've gone to public school. I've homeschooled them for time. They've gone to uh, private schools. I've done, you know, kind of a co-op. But what I did in the morning with my children with that morning devotional was the most important way I shored my children up educationally, where we would study the Bible, where I would teach them a story from American history and a little principle from the Constitution, where we would review the headlines of the newspaper and we would sing and pray. That has done more to offset the falsehoods that they have gotten in the classrooms uh, and my kids now that are 28, 25, and 23, they love to make fun of those devotionals, how they went on too long. And But they all bear testimony. They they say, Mom, those were the, the greatest things. I mean, we hated them when we did them. And they like to uh, terrorize me and make fun of it them. But they all say that that it was pivotal in, in helping 
root them and be able to discern, you know, what was really truth and not truth out in the world. Let's see that last slide. My little um, Marie, my, my little daughter, Mary Alice, that just graduated when she was a teenager, I'll never forget in one of the morning devotionals, and she was kind of complaining, but she's like, mom, when I was going on about history too long, because they're all trying to get ready to go to school and that kind of thing. She said, mom, I learn more from history in our morning devotionals than I ever have in my history class. And at the time she said it, I don't think she realized it, but to me, it was the greatest compliment she'd ever given her mother that you want them to know the truth of these great men and women from you before it's twisted and spun, you know, and it may, it may not be, but it, se it is seemingly being spun now. And so, you know, we are going to see some crisis in this nation, plagues and political crisis and natural disasters. And, and, you know, it seems like our political, you know, Congresses flip every so often. Our goal is going to be to get a body of leaders saturated in constitutional principles so that they can help rally the people and bring the nation back. But we can't get that kind of leader if we're not saturated in the principles that we've been learning the last nine weeks. And so, you know, more than Congress or any of those kind of entities, I bear you my witness that it will be you, it will be the righteous families who love America, not perfect families, but families that are trying, that are looking to God, that are trying to keep their little families close and are learning the wisdom of the founding fathers, just like we are today. Thank you for putting in over an hour of study today. And as you do this, when the opportunities come and the time is right, you will teach, you will teach these things to your children and to your grandchildren. And you'll be a part of getting on that wall and pushing back and teaching, you know, how things used to be. And we need to return to, to these kind of ideals in order, uh, you know, to heal and to repair, you know, our broken education and our broken systems in this country. Yeah.